voodoo. I just knew it was like the, the Warren Buffett quote was kind of sticking in our heads at the time, which is be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And we said, hey, well, if you're worried about it, let us buy it and um, we'll put the money behind it. And this thing, we, we think it's not going to last forever, but let's go out and do this while everyone else is running scared. Let's start marketing this. And so we did, right? And so we, that's where we kind of came into the ownership side of voodoo and it was a tough few months trying to sell a franchise when you couldn't even get a customer in there but yeah you know that was just kind of a, a setup year and then last year was really our first full year and then this year it's growing faster than we could have dreamed of welcome to franchise empires where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond I'm The Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's The Wolf. Today in the show, we have Brent Dowlin. Brent is the co-founder of Raintree, as well as a co-founder of Voodoo Brewing, a hot new brewery franchise that's growing very fast here in America. At Raintree, Brent learned all about franchise sales as he worked with tons of different franchises and helped them grow their locations nationally. Now, as a part owner of this brewery franchise, he's using those skills to build one of the most innovative and unique pubs in America. And he's giving the opportunity for franchisees to be the owner locally. I think you're gonna really enjoy this conversation as we go deep on franchising, as well as his new model with Voodoo. Hope you enjoy. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by The Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. How can your restaurants build the best teams? Use Wise Hire. Expert advice from experienced hiring coaches plus world-class tools and resources make every hire for every location faster and easier than ever. Go to wisehire.com slash pod to learn more. Let's start with Raintree. Could you kind of just for the audience, you know, some folks might not be super familiar, but you're obviously a, a multifaceted entrepreneur in the franchise world. So just tell us a bit about what Raintree is and how you ended up co-founding that business. Yeah, for sure. I kind of fell into it. I came to the States as a professional snowboarder, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And like everybody, it seems in franchising, weird road, I landed up in franchising. It was supposed to be a very temporary thing. I got like a $12 an hour marketing job as my first big boy job, right? <laughs> for some small popcorn franchisor in Boulder, Colorado. And it was just supposed to be a means to an end for a few months till I could figure out a real job or a real industry, like kind of half laughing about franchising. And then again, like a lot of people, you get in there and you see the stories of these entrepreneurs who get out of the corporate grind and many of them who really shatter their wealth expectations on on their business, right? And um, you realize how powerful it is and the community involved and I got hooked. So yeah, I was doing some franchise marketing and we were pretty good at it. My partner here at Raintree, he did the sales, I did the marketing. We took it from like zero to 350 sold in, in a few years and realized we had a good thing going. And after getting, I don't know, it was like, it felt like nine or 10 brands reach out to us saying, hey, come work for us. 
On the next brand, we realized that maybe what we did was scalable. And so we started Raintree with the idea of helping a number of, of key brands, of good brands, scale from just a few locations to finding the right franchisees and growing international brands. And so we do that when we partner with a franchise brand, we do all of their marketing, all of their sales, and we go about it in a way where we really make sure we're picking the right people for the right brands. Our whole vision here and our, our mission, right, is to become the leader in ethical franchise success. So it's all about saying generating a giant pipeline and getting people really excited about the franchises that we choose to work with, but then being hyper-selective and only allowing the select few into the brands if they're the right fit. So that's we've been doing that now almost 10 years. We've developed about 40 brands doing that. And Damn. in the last few years, we've kind of come over to the other side and owning some franchisors and, yeah. and a franchisee of a bunch of different concepts now too. So, but yeah, it all started with Raintree and that's still the day job and it's gone. <laughs> it's a fun ride, man. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I had no idea you're a professional snowboarder. Wait, so coming from Australia, this possibly an ignorant question. I've never been in Australia. I mean, is there mountains that you can snowboard on there or? Yeah, yeah. There is? Okay. I, I think of it as like a surf, a more of a surf community than snowboard. Oh, it totally is. Yeah. Surfing is like the national sport there, but it's yeah. like the West Coast. Like think of Vermont. Oh, it's okay. kind of smaller mountains and icy and yeah, yeah. Was it there? Sweet. Okay. Did not know that. Wow. Super cool. All right. And did you say that you guys also dabble as franchisees within Raintree? Yeah. Yeah. Just in the last few years, we've been trying to put our money where our mouths are and, and invest and live it on that side too. So there's three or four brands now. We just signed a franchise agreement yesterday as franchisees for Colorado for one of our newest brands. So we're, we're doing a bit of that now too. Fascinating. I love that. No, I think it's great. And so we could probably talk all day about Raintree if we wanted to, but I think what's interesting is you've acquired this franchisor or maybe it was just a brewery, but Voodoo Brewery. Or is it Voodoo Brewing? Sorry. I guess when did you acquire it? Was it already franchising or, or what's kind of the, the origin story there? Yeah, it's an interesting one, right? So we signed Voodoo as a partner to Raintree as a client, right? In like January 2020. And, you know, they put some money aside and were ready to press go. They had, you know, six corporate pubs and were ready to really start franchising with us. And then obviously we all know what happened two months later and, um, so we got a bunch of calls from a bunch of brands being like, dude, I can't open my doors right now. We're hemorrhaging cash. I have to put the franchise thing on hold. And we just saw, so when that call came from Voodoo, I just knew it was like that, that Warren Buffett quote was kind of sticking in our heads at the time, which is be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Yeah. And we said, hey, well, if you're worried about it, let us buy it and um, we'll put the money behind it. And this thing, we, we think it's not going to last forever, but let's go out and do this while everyone else is running scared. Let's start marketing this. And so we did, right? And so we, that's where we kind of came into the ownership side of Voodoo. And it was a tough few months trying to sell a franchise when you couldn't <laughs> even imagine. get a customer in there. Yeah. But yeah, you know, that was just kind of a, a setup year. And then last year was really our first full year. And then this year it's growing faster than we could have dreamed of. So turned out. That's awesome. And so, all right, so you, the transaction finalized like late 2020 or early right. 2021? Okay. Late 2020, yeah. All right. So then you have a year to kind of like, yeah, well, so what was that like? Because you obviously, you and your partner had a ton of franchise development experience, but that's different than overtaking six pubs and probably like a, I guess as part of that, right, is there like a central brewery that like where then the pubs can then sell that beer yeah yeah that's the beauty of the voodoo model right that's why we loved it is um 
Like there's so many people have this dream of and, and this this passion for craft beer and, and the thought of being able to sell that and be a brewery. It's just a cool concept. Yeah. The problem with that concept is it's a multi-million dollar investment and brewing sucks. It is brutal, <laughs> hard work. And yeah. people don't really get that until they're in it. And so the beauty of the voodoo model is we brew it all. It's a top 50 rated international beer. It's really renowned and respected if you look into the beer internationally, not just in the States. And so the franchisees come in, they just open the pub. They get to be the hero that sells this highly acclaimed beer without having to do any of the work there. They just put a a simple eclectic menu together and we help them with that. And we ship them the beer and they have good time talking craft beer to their communities all day. And, and so that's the beauty of the model, right? We're, we're sending it to them. Okay. And yeah, so like, what was that like that that first year, right? Just stepping in and I mean, did the seller train you on brewing? And like, I mean, I, I've looked into this, I mean, like you said, right? Who hasn't thought of owning a bar or a brewery yet sometimes? So like, I've done a little homemade beer and uh, it's kind of like a chemistry project and I gave it up pretty quick. Uh, <laughs> but like, yeah, what was that like stepping in and just, and then also even just the pubs itself, you have waiters or waitresses, I imagine potentially, or, or even just chefs to cook the food, like getting into that actual operational nitty gritty. Yeah. I mean, the beauty is the founders are still our partners and they're still involved in that. The corporate pubs are, are a separate entity to the entity we created for the franchise thing. So we didn't have to deal with any of that. They do and okay. they do a great job, but even like for the franchisees, the the model, like why, again, I was so high on we should invest in this and the, probably the worst time in, his, in recent history to do something like this was they were ahead of the game. Like, so they created this model based on a European beer hall. And in that scenario, there's no wait staff. You simply go to the bar, you order your beer, you order your food there and you pick it up at the counter yourself. And what that model has allowed them to do is to run really lean. They don't need to hire many employees. You have a cook out the back, you have a bartender and maybe a couple of the people when you're busy and that's it. And they've been doing that since 2008, I think was the first retail pub operation. So, you know, the whole world in the last couple of years has gone to, how do we automate this? How do we solve this labor crisis? How do we run higher margins in food when we've got all these people? They'd been practicing and figuring that recipe out long before the pandemic started. And that was another reason we felt really comfortable in moving forward as franchisors with the brand because they simplified the heck out of it. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you've been able to retain them to kind of still run ops while you guys really take over the brand as a whole and then franchise it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a beautiful partnership. Jake and and Mateo, the founders, they still run the ops side. They're there putting teams together to make sure that these pubs are doing what they need to do. And we're out there building the brand and making it into a national thing, just one one pub at a time. Yeah. All right. Well, so I guess let's call it like, when did you officially start franchising it? Late 2021 or early 2022? Yeah, I would say late 2021 is when we really put the foot down. So last year was really the first year of, of going and offering it across the country. Okay. And so you had six... There's already six corporate pubs, you know, franchisor owned pubs. Right. And yeah, I guess. So since you feel like put pedal to the metal just for like, you know, it's table set it here. How many like units open today and even units in development as well with or like, you know, yeah, franchises sold, let's call it. Yeah. Yeah. We have um, 15 open now. Uh, four more in the next three weeks, actually, it's going to be a wow. busy yeah. opening for the opening team. But yeah, so that'll put us close to 20 open by May-ish, and then we have about another 60 in development from there, people behind 
finding leases, finding the spots, getting in construction, all, all those types of things. So, yeah. Fascinating. I was interested in this concept because there's, I haven't come across like, I mean, there's, don't get me wrong, there's a dog house, it's like a beer garden franchise. Mm-hmm. But like for the most part, there's not, and there's of course other franchises that like serve alcohol. I mean, I mean, Applebee's serves alcohol, <laughs> but that's obviously a lot different than Voodoo. Yeah. So like just a, a brewery pub franchise, there's not many that 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 are out there right or uh, you know what how do you view the competitive landscape from a franchise perspective so i don't personally think we have any true competitors because you've got some brew focused franchise brands but they're a different operation you're not getting one of those open for less than a mil and a half or two mil in some cases you're doing the brewing we've simplified it right so our item seven in our fdd is it's about 350 to high sevens to open one of these so it's, it's a very different model, again, simplified, so it can be adopted and run by anyone that, that's willing to do a little bit of hard work, be community-oriented, and have fun while doing it. And I think, you know, one of the things that they've done, we've done well that, that's really set us apart, not just from kind of the bigger breweries, but from any franchisors, especially in the food space. Like at Raintree, we went through this exercise recently. It was fascinating, right? So we challenged ourselves to say we understand franchising we see the stories of people you know achieving their dreams both financially from lifestyles we all know how special this model can be we know what can happen when you put the wrong people in the wrong brands and how to avoid that but we're all in love with the model here and so we challenged ourselves with but what does the average american think like are we in danger here of talking about a model where most americans don't get it or it's a negative perception And so we spent weeks going through this exercise and there's a lot of negative connotations out there from the average person, right, who doesn't quite understand the franchise concept. What we found is like the average person sees franchising as McDonald's. You got to invest a mil or two to maybe make a hundred thousand and you got to spend every waking hour running the business. So you'll work way harder than you will in corporate America just for the rights to say you're a franchise owner and make less money. And that was kind of, if you scour the internet and comments, we spent hours and hours on Reddit boards and YouTube comments and put it all together and that was it. And so one of the other interesting ones was that people don't like the cookie cutter, the franchise connotation of, oh, it's a franchise. For the average American, that's not a positive. It's because they don't get it. And so we wanted to attack that. One, we're doing our bit to make sure that the average American understands how special the franchise model is. It's 70 years of proven success when you do it right, right? There's no other business model that's come close to this level of success for this longer time. So we're doing that. But what we do want to do is say, you know, right, that cookie cutter thing where you're under the thumb of the franchisor and you got to make sure the sign is exactly where they say it is. Otherwise, they'll, you know, they'll find you or terminate you. Let's be the opposite of that. And so one of the to tie all that back, one of the really cool things about Voodoo is where what we call anti-franchise, anti-corporate, anti-cooker cutter, cookie cutter vibe, which means you know when you walk into a voodoo, it will still feel like a voodoo, but they have complete freedom to make it their own. The menu can be community-based, the design and artwork all over the world reflects their community. We even don't have like we have a singular Voodoo logo, but we redesign it every single time for every franchisee. So, for example, here in Denver, we're going to have little mountains behind our, our skull and, and it. And so that allows every franchise owner to say, yeah, this is mine. And they are working with me to make sure this is locally owned and operated 
but I just have the backing of folks that have done this successfully. And so that's probably one of the coolest things when we tie that back to what's different about this. That's my favorite thing that I think we're doing that no other, not many other franchisors are. And I think that we really, as, a, as an industry, need to look at doing more of it so we can change the common perception out there. Yeah, wow. I mean, there's a lot I like about that. I totally agree. I mean, obviously, that's a big part of my goal with my content is just to kind of show, like, try to break some of that stigma down, right? Because, you know, I mean, I kind of thought of, thought that before. I mean, I wasn't a professional snowboarder before uh, getting into the industry, but when I just found myself randomly in franchising, you know, at first I'm like, wait a second, like these things have royalties, like the franchise fees, they're a bunch of crap. And then I was like, oh, I met a bunch of multi-unit owners. I'm like, okay, you can make a ton of money in a bunch of different franchises. But yeah, like there is that stigma of like, A, there's the McDonald's affiliation with that word. They just immediately think French fries, fast food, et cetera. And like, if there's one thing I actually, I don't regret it per se, but I wish, I think like the French fry icon I have with the Wolf of Franchises, it almost like lends itself to just perpetuating that fast food affiliation, which it is what it is at this point. But like, I mean, of course, right, I, I do speak with franchise owners of all kinds and brands and industries. But yeah, like I do think there's both those realities are true is that everyone associates it with McDonald's and or just thinks it's like a bad situation to be in. It's really interesting, though, what you're saying about I love that aspect, like this anti-franchise mantra where you're giving them more freedom at the local level. And it actually reminds me a lot about, so Danny Meyer, who he founded Shake Shack, uh, as well as Union Square Ventures, you know, he with Shake Shack actually does something similar, which, you know, not a franchise, but he still tries to intertwine the local culture of like every location. So like, I know he has one in Connecticut, which is nearby Yale, and it's a kind of like a college town location. So there's, I guess there was some big football game and like, I don't know, historic times as far as I know, but they have some piece of the stadium in the, like built into the like it was from the Yale Bowl or something like that. And it's built into the structure, into the actual restaurant. And like the way the painting on the walls is, it's all like very localized. Um, and they even partner with like local charities in e- for each Shake Shack. And they do like a, one night of the month goes to like the local charity. So they are very community oriented. And yeah, that, that kind of sounds a lot like what you're doing, uh, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. And even from like the franchisee side, right? Like, yes, they want a proven system. And they want the backing and support. That's why they're a big part of why they're buying a franchise. But it is so much more exciting when you can really feel like you're still making it your own, which like I love like the logo, how like in Denver, I guess you're placing it in mountains. Maybe if you have one in California, there's probably like a sunset or an ocean behind. I don't know. That's cool, though. Um, is there any other ways that you're really trying to like give franchisees that that way to make their voodoo brewery and like their communities and their own? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think the menu is a big part, right? Like, so we have a a culinary director here. Every single franchisee, he'll sit down and say, here's what sells. But tell me, what does your community love? What's special to you? Let's build the menu based on that. And so we recreate it every single time. There's some staple items, of course, but we're recreating that every time. And that was a pretty good investment on the culinary side, but it's paying off, right? Because again, I think people like the connotation of a well-known and trusted brand, but knowing something's locally owned and operated, there's a sense of pride for the franchise owner and for the customer too, right? Like this is ours. And I think now we're just now getting to the point where we're going to make sure we put plaques on every store that says locally owned and operated by franchises available a little bit under there. But I think the big question is like when we talk about the connotation with the average American on, on franchising and 
I feel like we've talked about crypto before, right? I feel like <laughs> we're probably due in franchising to do something similar where, you know, cryptocurrency had a bad connotation with, you know, bad people doing using it for wrong reasons and it rebranded itself. Oh, yeah, pump and dumps. Yeah, exactly. And then they rebranded themselves to Web3 yes. uh, and gave themselves a, a fresh start. I wonder if we're due for that in franchising. Do we have to start calling it something else? Because it's not what it was 70 years ago. It's a different model now. I completely agree. Yeah, I tried like, I don't know what I was going to say. I tried to rebrand it because like, who am I to try to rebrand an entire business model? But I like tried to offer once I, I just posted on Twitter and in my newsletter, but I don't think it encapsulates it well because it's from the franchisor perspective versus like the franchisee. But like I rebranded, I'm in air quotes here, rebranded franchising as like business as a service, right? which it's the same exact thing. It's just a different way of looking at like what a franchise is and what the franchise system is. It's like whoever you're buying the franchise from, right, is providing you that concept like as a service and just like a subscription, right, for as a service, you pay a monthly royalty for to get access to those systems, to that concept, how to run it, the branding uh, in your case, right? Like there's always specifics to each franchise, like that culinary uh, investment that you made that then the franchise can leverage that for their location. And then of course, I'm sure they're able to have beers shipped directly from your brewery to them, which like who else can, you know, like a mom and pop isn't going to get access to a world-class brewery. So yeah, that was my way of thinking about it. But again, like it doesn't necessarily rebrand it for the franchisee. So but I love where your head's at. We should definitely try to think about something there. I mean, I do think, though, even for you. So this here's an interesting question, because some franchisors think I've, the feedback I've gotten is, and I'm talking about how you're saying, like putting plaques where it's like locally owned and operated by, you know, Brent Dowling and, you know, you can own your own. I personally, just because I've spoken to enough brick and mortar franchisors where a lot of the successful ones say, that they get tons of inbound because like someone's on vacation or someone's just traveling or whatever and they they use a franchise and they don't know it's a franchise, but they see it inside the store and they're like, oh, I got to open one in my town. So it just serves as amazing marketing for yourself. But other franchises thinks it like cheapens the brand potentially, which I, I disagree with. I think if you do it right, it's, it's, not a, it's not cheap to just plant that seed somewhere, like own your own voodoo or something like that. But yeah, I'd be curious. For, I mean, it sounds like you're open to the idea of like planting that seed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We see the same, right? People, when they learn it's a franchise, especially Voodoo, when they think it's a locally operated brewery, there's a lot of interest. Like we get a good amount of lead flow from that too. But I agree. I do agree both sides. You have to be very careful with it, right? Like, especially when it's not the franchisor's location, it's the franchisees and we're using that real estate to sell yeah. our own franchise opportunities. True. The positive side to that is when you have really good franchisees and they're aware of the benefits and why it's pretty critical to them that we continue to grow with other great locations and what that means to them, the economies of scale that they'll receive as the brand grows. Ultimately, all these dot points that lead to higher exits for them when you grow with the right partners. And that's kind of a problem for younger brands or less mature franchisors where they get pushback from franchisees saying, I don't want to... So I don't want to talk to your potential candidates or put a sign saying franchise is available. It's just competition. And so you have to educate them to understand here's why it's actually a good thing and why you really want to get behind it. And that's always tricky when you've got a new brand, but all good brands seem to do it pretty well. Listeners, you know how hard it is to hire at scale. That's why successful franchise owners use WiseHire. 
Their expert hiring coaches and world-class tools and resources make hiring faster and easier than ever. From posting job ads to scheduling interviews, WiseEyer has all your locations covered. Shift to a new way of hiring with WiseHire. Learn more at wisehire.com slash pod. That's W-I-Z-E-H-I-R-E dot com slash pod. Yeah, there's definitely a conversation that has to be had and completely hear you. I mean, you are technically, I guess, yeah, you're using the franchisee's real estate, but it should be a net positive for overall for everyone when done right. Regarding the culinary aspect, you know, like localizing the menu, so to speak, it sounds like you have a few staple items that every every location will have. Do you think, could that impact scalability of it as like a nationwide system of like, you just have kind of these one-off menu items go into different locations or is it almost like you help the franchisee source that locally and then it's kind of just a, on them to manage that, their localized menu items? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. It's working now and we're growing pretty quick. There probably will be a time where we need a second and a third culinary director. Uh, I just think it's worth the investment because, again, I think locally adopted menus, right, where both the franchisee and the customer understand it, they get it, there's a sense of pride in their their key products. It's working well and we don't have an item 19, so I can't kind of validate what that means. But like I can tell you that these pubs are opening phenomenally and I think that's a part of it, right? It's the putting the little dip work into things that may not allow us to scale as fast as we may want to, but um, we're seeing the benefits of that on, from a financial perspective, both for the franchisee and for us as the franchisor. That makes sense. And yeah, well, I definitely want to hit on the lack of an item 19 in a second. Just still riffing on this localized menu. So if I'm a franchisee and, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, so hopefully the listeners don't hate me for that. But, you know, if I grew up going down the shore in Jersey... And it's not like the TV show, like everyone would think of. There's actually just a lot of very nice beaches. Uh, it's not like a madhouse or anything. But, you know, uh, like there's more, you know, that's like a summer vibe down there. A lot of like uh, good taco spots and stuff like that. And there's a local chain, Surf Tacos, the, the good chain down there. But like, could I at a voodoo potentially offer some type of taco item if I opened a voodoo down the shore in New Jersey? Like, is that kind of, does the franchisee got to kind of say, this is what I want? Or like, do you kind of put up some guardrails for how they can think about that? Yeah, totally. It's a total possibility. It really is a collaborative effort, right? The environment from day one is, here's what we think we can do. If you wanted to do a taco, here's where your margins might be, or here's some of the issues. But if it's important to you and you want to try it, let's build that in and make that happen. The okay. intent of like why voodoo's, it's cool. It's because it's more than just the beer, right? The the well, We call it elevated pub food. Um, what our intent is, is to do key known staple items like tacos that's on there too and burgers but we always do a little bit different our food is just something that you can't get anywhere else we incorporate a lot of the beer into the cooking in each menu too and so yeah i mean like if that's the local thing yeah then we were totally plausible to say let's do a taco let's infuse it with some good vibes ipa yeah and let's let's make that happen but we've got the you know the 10 12 things that these are the recipes these are what we'll sell let's figure out a few things that are important to you and we'll make that happen. Wow. Yeah. So um, 10 to 12, that's a good narrow menu. 
I like that. That's super simple. And uh, when it comes to the beer, is there like a rotation or is it kind of just uh, like the classics and then maybe a few of the taps and the, like, do you just have a few rotating, but like you have like your consistent ones or how does that kind of work as a franchisee? Yeah, we have year round staple brands that we know people love and sell really well. And they're the dominant and menu, but we also do seasonal things too, right? So oh, we do cool. a lot of beers in summer and, and franchisees can have access to that. Nice. We're also starting to do some collaborations with elite pubs in the local markets with franchisees. So that's something that's being investigated and launched right now. But that's going to be really cool as well is when a franchisee immediately gets access to partner with the most elite brewery in their market because Voodoo has such the brand recognition. So there's things like that too, which will allow the franchisees from time to time to, to do something a little different as well. No, I love that. So folks, Brent was nice enough to send me some beers before uh, the podcast. Haven't had a chance to try them, but what blew my mind, and even if you're not interested in owning a brewery franchise, just check out their website just for the artwork alone. How do you do the artwork on the cans and like even the box? I mean, it's incredible. Did, is that just, you hire someone for that? I, I know it's kind of, you know, IPA breweries in particular seem like can artwork is kind of a distinguishing factor, but you guys go all out there and it was, I was blown. I just want to keep the box just because the design was so cool. Like what's the process there? Yeah. So we have an artist who's extremely talented. He's been with Voodoo for many years. His name's Tom Ness. And for every new beer brand that we create, he spends hours and hours and hours putting together. But, you know, it's important, right? Like even in the franchisee and the corporate pubs, we always say it's about not just the beer, but the food, the music and the artwork within the pubs too, right? And so art's one of the key things that's been there. And there's some weird stuff. Our brand is weird and that's <laughs> what you'll see in the labels too. But there's a lot of energy putting into those designs and the customers seem to like it. The franchisees like it. But yeah, I agree with you. We're always excited whenever we see a new brand come out. The artwork is something that I don't see. You see a lot of good beer brands doing some weird stuff and some cool stuff. I just, and I'm biased. I think that is the best. <laughs> does, Tom does such a great job. I mean, it, it's pretty sweet. The colors and everything, it's awesome. Uh, it's definitely unique. I think that's totally fair to say. And last question before we get to item 19 and, and that discussion, but uh, does every franchisee have to own a liquor license, I'm assuming, right, to do this? And how does that process go? Is it different state by state? Like, I feel like I could be totally off here, but I feel like in New Jersey, there's almost like a set number of liquor licenses. And if you don't have one, you have to like buy one off of an existing restaurant owner. Exactly. Yeah. New Jersey is tough. It's probably the toughest oh, in the country. Wow. Okay. And so we prefer liquor licenses. Obviously, it, it equates to a little bit more revenue every year, but you can still do this concept well with just a beer license, which is easy to get, beer and wine. But so far, everyone. So if you can't, let's say you can't get a liquor license, you can, there's such a thing as just a beer license? Beer and wine license, which is easier to get. Yeah. Did not sure. know that. So, yeah. Okay. But yeah, we have an attorney on our side and, and we coach franchisees on the process of getting the liquor license. And it's, again, you're in a tough state for it. We haven't, <laughs> we don't have any franchisees there. We may not for a while just for that very reason. Damn. But the rest of the country is pretty friendly about it. Yeah. Wow. All right. I didn't know that was unique to New Jersey. Uh, that's a bummer. We had one franchisee, right, that was um, looking at a potential franchisee and they're a good fit. We were liking them, but I think they came back and said, well, I've, I found the liquor license. It's going to be 800000 And we were like, oh, that's a lot of beer you got to sell in a year or two to make up 800000 that you don't have to do in other states. I don't know if I'd do that. So it was crazy when I heard that number. 
Well, that's how I heard about it. Cause where my, my mom's side of the family grew up, it's like a small town, kind of a classic like American town. Like everyone knows each other. It's changed a bit. This is when she was growing up. But so she still knew a lot of like the older folks who maybe ran the barber shop or the classic town bar. And that person who ran the bar, you know, he's getting to the point where he's trying to retire. And he's like, yeah, I'm getting multi, not multi-million dollar, but it was seven figure offers, you know, low seven figure offers for his liquor license. And that's when I learned, cause you know, I was like, how are, like, why don't people just get a new one or whatever? And he's like, there is no such thing. Like there's a set number. If you don't have one, you got to get one. And you got to get it from someone who already owns one. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me, but uh, that's good to know, I guess, that in other states, it's far easier. I mean, the good news to that in Jersey, though, is it's a hard asset, right? Like it's unlikely to depreciate. Yeah. (laughs) Um, As we grow in population, it's probably going to appreciate. So yeah, you got to spend the money, but it's still, I mean, on your balance sheet is a good thing. Oh, for sure. That's an asset. No, I mean, uh, I think through prohibition and any recession, the bottom line is, you know, in good times and bad, people are, people want to drink. Um, that was more my core <laughs> thesis of why we bought into it. I'm like, I don't care if it's a pandemic, a recession. <laughs> we've been as like we've been at, for four hundred thousand years. We uh, it's ingrained in our DNA to gather in a community as a tribe, eat and drink meat or beer or whatever, and that's <laughs> never going away. Yeah, I don't know what it says about us as creatures, but you're dead right. Yeah, people like to drink regardless of. Uh, if it's for better or for worse. So that was a smart investment, if I have to say. All right, well, let's talk about item 19. And and for people who don't know, item 19 is a section of a franchise disclosure document, which you have to view and hold for 14 days before you can actually legally purchase a franchise. But it's a good thing for you to read through because it tells you all about the franchise, you know, things like bankruptcies and lawsuits and the investment level. But again, item 19 is where a franchise franchisor, so Brent, as you know, one of the executives at Voodoo could choose to share financial performance representations of Voodoo brewery pubs that are already open and operating. So, and there's no restrictions. It could be as transparent as a full profit and loss statement which I know some Raintree brands do that because I love covering them in my newsletter. (laughs) You make my life easy. But then also on the flip side, franchisors don't have to share anything. And then at that point, typically your best chance as a prospective buyer is to speak to an existing franchise owner who's already, you know, bought a voodoo brewery, let's say, and they have no regulation or liability risk as a franchisee. They're considered a neutral third party. So they could quite literally, if they were feeling up to it, share their QuickBooks or accounting software with you and do a whole financial model if you really wanted to. But Brent on the franchisor side does have liability. You know, you're not allowed to make projections for prospective buyers or anything like that. However, you can share past performance data again in item 19. So that's our little spiel on item 19 for anyone who wasn't familiar, Brent. But so yeah, you don't share anything in there. And I know you wanted to share a little bit, maybe more about why. So yeah, definitely just if you want to kind of kick it off with your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, that was a great rundown of the item 19, very succinctly said. So at Raintree, we pass on about 98% of the brand applications we get. We can work with the select few that we know that we can grow quickly and that, that have everything we need in order to become a truly elite hypergrowth brand, as we call them. And one of the things, one of the commonalities that we see when we do say yes is the PL, the item 19 typically has clean PLs, where it's very easy to get a good understanding of franchisee profitability. Yeah. I think that's like the bar, right? That's where we as franchisors want to get to. And so, but 
Voodoo is the, the exception there. We don't have one. And so I do get a lot of questions on how are you growing that fast when people don't, can't understand how much money they can make? And it's a good question, right? And I think, you know, I've probably, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of FDDs I've read in the last 10 years, but, you know, you start to see some commonalities. I think that there's a few things to it, right? Like if I was looking, if you're listening to this and you're looking to buy a franchise and if it's Voodoo, or another brand that doesn't have an item 19, should I run away, right? Why would they not disclose that? And I think there's a couple different reasons. Like, so that the example of Voodoo is this, we only started opening pubs when we came into it last year. So none of the pubs that we've opened since we came into the ownership group are more than 12 months. And so we'll probably have one for next year to show just that little sample. But yeah, the question is, well, why don't you list the corporate locations like a lot of franchisors do? I think here's why we didn't do it. And it's also, I think, a bigger problem in franchising. We didn't do it because I can't say the numbers because it's, again, earnings yeah. claim and I never yep. want to be in trouble. But the corporate pubs do phenomenally well. And well, why wouldn't you guys want to show that? Well, what the difference is there's certain things that don't apply to a franchisee. We have far better economies of scale. The beer's right there. We've had 15 years of experience. So there's economies of scale is a big bucket with a number of line items under it. We don't pay royalties, and sure, you can calculate that in, but, you know, there's they're probably the two big buckets. And when we look at item 19s where franchisors list their corporate locations and you scroll down, sometimes it can set the wrong expectations for franchisees because they're like, well, why can't I do X percentage profitability like I saw in that item 19? And they find out after the fact, well, it's not quite the same when you're starting out brand new, you don't have the history, economy, all these things. Yeah. And so... From an ethical standpoint, yeah, we probably would have sold more if we listed how well those pubs are doing, but I don't want shitty franchise owners that have a bad expectation. I'd rather go the other route. And so that's why we haven't done it yet. We just, it's not the right thing to do. And I see franchisors doing it and I shake my head like, man, this type of stuff can give franchising a black eye. Yeah. And so I think that's something to be careful of. If you are looking at a brand, don't just look at the net profit line item and say, yeah, that's great. Move on. Ask questions, right? Ask enough questions to understand, well, how long did it take you guys to get there? What are the differences that I'll expect do you think in my local market? All those types of things. Add the royalties in and then and the brand funds and things that like that may or may not be in there. And so that's kind of why we didn't do it. That makes sense. And I so I definitely agree. And this is something I try to like harp on in the newsletter is, you know, for the newsletter perspective, it's hard to share a brand and cover one if they don't have an item 19. Cause like it's just from my time perspective. I don't know if I usually don't have time to like reach out to a franchisor and say, Hey, like your brand looks cool, it's growing, but you don't have an item 19. Can you talk to me about it? Like, I mean, one, there's just too many liabilities there for them. So like anyway, that's why I only cover brands that show item 19. But I always try to harp on you know, focus a big, that's a big focus. Like how long has this sample size of data even been open? Cause that you're dead. Right. I mean, if a corporate location has been, you know, there's brands I've seen that they take off in the first year and it's based off like two locations of a corporate location that have been open for 20 years. So they're actually like, they are the only game in town for the local market. And, but folks need to realize that, you know, whatever that brand is, if they open it on the other side of the country, no one's heard of them. Like you're never going to, you can't just, it's going to take you time to ramp up. So that's a big factor is understanding if you're seeing, you know, sexy numbers in a profit and loss statement, understanding how long it took those locations to get there. What's interesting and what it sounds like is a little unique for your corporate locations, though, 
is that it sounds like because is it the brewery factor that you guys have some like beneficial economies of scale that don't translate to a franchisee effectively? Yeah, yeah, and they're effectively satellite operation, relatively close. You can share labor between your cost of goods can be easily manageable because you can move them from one pub to the other. Yeah. A franchisee starting out in a new market does not have that ability, and that will show in their numbers for sure. Yeah, okay. So, Yeah, that makes sense. But I think that like it's interesting too, right? Like I think even when, again, I love the benchmark has to be – Full franchisee P&Ls. When I see those in an item 19, that's great. But I think, you know, I learned in my earlier career, I was making a pretty big mistake. I would kind of just immediately scroll all the way to net profit, match that up against the item seven, do that calculation of, oh, yeah, I can see my money back in 18 months. Great, move on. (laughs) I think that we talked about how you can overestimate if you look at, if you do that on a corporate by not looking at the details, asking questions about maturity at royalties, other fees that might not be in there. On the other side, like I've probably passed on brands I shouldn't have because I didn't know when you're looking at some franchisee P&Ls, like most Business owners, like the number one benefit is as a business owner, I'm going to pay less tax. That's a privilege for owning a business. And so I run the business in a way where if there's things that I can legally put against the business to drive that net profit down so I pay less tax, owner benefits, and there's a bunch of those, um, I'm going to do that. And Oh, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. you get the P&L and you scroll down and you're like, eh, they're only making 6%. Well, but the labor was really high because they paid themselves 300000 and him, he and his wife had brand new cars and their nurse and their daycare is a line item in there. Yeah. And it took me a long time to figure out, don't just skip down to the net profit. Look at it, ask questions, right? That's a really good point. Yeah. And if there's a way to itemize, right, that owner's discretionary income before you get to net profit, then that, that's good because, you know, that's an add back if you're looking at buying the franchise. Yeah. Wow. Really good point. I've never thought about like the underestimation side as much. I'm always worried about, you know, people, people overestimating how much they can make. But that's a fair point. Yeah. I mean, this is the reality is like the smart, savvy business owners and, you know, it takes some time, but, you know, right. If try to, I think the recommendation there is like hire a good bookkeeper uh, an accountant who can kind of coach you on like the best tax strategies and all that. Cause there's a lot of different things you can do as once you are the actual business owner and ways you can, benefit your lifestyle that maybe, like you said, it doesn't always show up in just that pure net profit number. For sure. Yeah. And you said it at the start of this item 19 discussion too. You're totally right. Like I said, it's whether you get a, an item 19 that's beautiful with a ton of P&Ls or whether you get an item 19 that just shows revenue or you get one that, that's diddly squat. The main objective is still got to get on with as many franchise owners as you can and ask the questions directly to them. It doesn't matter what scenario the item 19, it's a good, helpful start, but your real diligence happens in validation. And I think you said that it's, it just can't be overstated. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's where Voodoo's been good too, right? Like, yeah, there's estimations on what franchisees can do and that's hard for them to do without an item 19. But when they talk to the franchise owners, they can ask away, what's your rent? What's your cogs? What's your expectations? How many pubs are you going to open? And that's where they get really excited, right? That's the key point. I I completely agree. I think the FDD is maybe a good surface level primer for understanding, Do is there something here where I want to dive in further? But yeah, like the real due diligence is done on the phone with franchisees and, you know, even maybe visiting a few locations as well. So I guess in wrapping up here, what's your end goal here with Voodoo? You know, you have a 
location, like units open, North Star Mark in mind? Or, you know, is it world domination or just America? You know, how have you guys thought about that? So this is usually easier with every other brand I've been involved is it's let's just get one as every, in every place that we can that makes sense, whether yeah. that's 500 units or a thousand or whatever. But craft beer is different, man. It's certainly anti-corporate and that's our brand, right? And so to live that brand, to have a voodoo in every corner wouldn't be living the brand. It's also- I agree. These pubs generally do pretty well right out the gate because it's a big deal when one comes to the community. Like you can't just get this beer if you're not in a state with distribution or a franchisee or a corporate pub. And so to keep that demand alive, is it a hundred locations? Is it two? Is it even less? I'm not sure. And it's a fascinating conversation we're having right now, but we're growing quickly and we'll yeah. have to kind of reevaluate. But for now, yeah, I think that it's, let's get to hundred, get to royalty self-sufficiency and whenever that occurs, probably earlier, but let's do that and then figure out how much further we want to take this. No, that's a great point. Yeah, because I even know like some of the big breweries and just here, like around the East Coast, there's some where you can only get the beer at the actual brewery. Like there's, I forget, there's, I think it's called Treehouse in Massachusetts. You can only get it from the facility and like their lines are like out the door every weekend for people just, and they limit you because like that, that's how in demand they are. Is they literally say to you, you can only take like eight beers away. Like we got to keep some or else the rest of the customers won't get a, get any drop of our beer. So yeah, that's a really good point. I, I like where your head's at with trying to strike that balance of, you know, like obviously growing the brand, growing the business, but you know, you got to be more careful than obviously like a fast casual brand that maybe does one on every corner. So yeah, well, look, man, sounds like you're off to a great start. I think it's a super interesting model. And obviously you guys, uh, it sounds like you have a great matchup where Raintree, you know, you guys certainly know the franchising side and then you have the great operational partners out of Colorado. So that's fantastic. Where can people follow along either your journey individually or Voodoo's? Yeah, um, you can go to the Voodoo site, voodoofranchising.com and check that out. There's territory maps there. They're going by the day. So if you are interested, you're probably going to get in quick. As I said, we might shut this down at 100, which is not that far away. But check it out, Voodoo Franchising. And then you can go to my LinkedIn. God, I even bore myself with some of my posts on there. So you can <laughs> check me out. But it's not a great reading. If you're really bored, sure. <laughs> All right. Well, you're, he's an honest man, folks. He's an honest man. I've never. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn's a snooze fest. Who are we kidding? But we'll plug it anyway, folks, if you if you need to go to sleep and take a nap. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. All right. Thanks again, Brent. Uh, this is a fun combo, and uh, we'll talk soon. Cheers, Wolf. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.